Well, hello everyone. Welcome to Quantum Nurse Freedom International live stream. And with me are my bestest friends from around the world. And, you know, because at this time we need to be with friends, even like on a distance, on the digital form like this. So I have Jan Katsavos from Canada, maybe soon. Maybe not. And then um, we have Steve all the way from another part of the ocean. So from the awakened mind. And of course, my right now, also my favorite uh, friend from afar and not really far, not but far. You know, still just when I say far, because we haven't really met just, but all of us haven't met in person, but we just kind of bonded. And you know, when you want to collaborate and feel like you are with minded people, that just happens organically. Mm -hmm. So, and thank you for all of you who've been following and also doing your work, okay? Because we, we, we just don't want to talk to the wall or talk to the air, but we want that if anything of the conversation that resonates to you, please share it, please do some actions to contribute to what we're trying to achieve and all about freedom of choice and just being real celestial humans, like claiming back our original DNA. So today, Alison, thank you so much for being, I know you've been so busy, okay? Well, I've been a little bit more low profile this summer. I've been sort of had a bit of a regrouping, but I'm glad to have, to have the invitation to come back. So thank you, Grace. Mm -hmm. And so maybe we could just start. Um, oh, I, I'll just tell them that you are you have a heart art history, and but for me, she is also a and a degree that no 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 university gave her. Instead, she just claimed it and she ran away with it. So let's just say it's like an impact investing expert or whatever you call it, because sometimes I wish I could have maybe just one fourth of how she understands and figure out quickly. And then she goes deep dive in the Internet and voila, she just sees and connects them all. OK, so that's how beautiful shit and by the way Allison I also like the recent ones that you did your YouTube when you're very artistic and you put them all in either cut works print and at one point I saw your knit so anyway I think you you have your medicine for yeah. keeping yourself we'll have our gifts your sanity and welcome and i'm glad that mary can join us today and she's from united states as well so um uh, uh, allison why don't you just start us with the last time we had a conversation you were doing that indigenous way of the dandelions you know in new york and you're very in touch with nature and how those um in indigenous tribes have survived many things. So just give us a little update for that. Yeah, so um, so that continues to evolve. I've been getting, um, uh, still getting packages that, that it's a bit past dandelion season, but people have still been bringing me dandelions. In fact, today I met up with someone in person who lives in the area who connected with me on Twitter. So we I just met her in a park and we walked around downtown and they're, um, planter like they had a tire planter in front of their their building and it had this amazingly lush dandelion leaves coming out of it like they were literally i mean these are this is like a tire planter like the leaves are like a foot and a half long i'm like 
can I have a few of those leaves to take with me? You know, it had just rained and it was really nice. So I, I scooped those up. So um, essentially I'm, you know, I've been doing a lot of little energetic interventions, I guess is sort of what I call them. And, you know, you know, I think in terms of like what I have to offer at this moment, you know, it's been such a marathon for people, right? Like we're 18 months in, I think people are having to face really hard choices. I know, you know, there, there was discussion about like where people are choosing to live, what people are planning on doing for employment, what people are planning on doing, like it's getting to the point that people are really getting up against a wall. And, um, in that space, I think, um, and I don't mean to downplay in any measure how intense and hard that all is, but I'm, I'm finding that there's an increased entrenchment on both sides about like, you know, this is all about trauma-based mind control, you know, in, in many respects. So they're enacting yeah. it on the society as a whole. But in some ways, I think with even within the resistance community, there's a tendency for us to enact that on one another, right? And so the culture of fear or a, a sort of a death cult. And I think on some sides, the, the people who've taken injections are like, all of you people who didn't are going to die and overwhelm the healthcare system. Right. But then all the many people on the resistance side are like, all of you who made this health choice, you're all going to die too. And so we're all cut up in these like okay. spiraling cycles of like, like trauma, really like we're traumatizing each other. Well, like we have different angles on the trauma, but there is a huge trauma cycle and like the focus on, that there's a global call happening and that sort of thing. And I will say, you know, in my family, my loved ones have taken, you know, availed themselves of that thing, right? It wasn't my choice. It wasn't, but that's the path that is laid out before me. So in a lot of it, and I, I, I sort of tweaked the title about information warfare, because I think this is a spiritual thing that we're navigating. And it's, it's what narrative are we going to inhabit? Because sometimes the, the story that we inhabit helps create our reality. And not that you can like whole cloth make reality out of something that it's not, but like the way in which you approach things can actually, it can make a difference. And so my framing that I'm offering to the world is sort of like, this is all really intense, but I don't want to dig into that there's an inseparable divide and no one can ever come back together because I think in an energetic level, the only way to prevail in, in standing, not just for human life, but all life on the planet is that, that there's some way to knit society back at some point. Like, mm -hmm. I don't know the time horizon on that, but I, I have to believe that their redemption is possible all around and that that is out there somewhere, how we do it. I don't know exactly, but that that's a possibility. Um, and so like, that is what I'm off. I continue to offer in sort of the the little ceremonies that I do or the dance, it may seem totally flaky. And I will say for the most part, I do it for myself. I'm not asking hundreds of people to come along and also make their dandelion offerings. For the most part, what I have been doing is acknowledging that where we are now is actually, um, you know, centuries in the making, really. It's this system mm. of domination that go back centuries. And, uh, and a lot of it goes back to the Western enlightenment sort of science-based work that is, in my opinion, sort of counter to more indigenous cultural based practice. But, you know, really back to the Roman Empire, you know, and, and Dean Henderson is so wonderful about talking about the crown and like these bloodlines and how far these things go back. So we're living in this moment where our life story 
is unfolding and entangled with all of these layers of history. And because of my position in this machine of being in Philadelphia, which is a city of like very layered hist histories and mm -hmm. false histories, you know, and stories that are told that may or may not be true or fully accurate. Um, for me, weaving myself into that history and surfacing it and doing these ceremonies of healing, um, spiritual healing feels like what I'm supposed to do. Um, and, and it might be a model for other people who in, in, um, in a position of feeling profoundly disempowered can claim some agency and some creativity of in a world, a way of being in the world that, that utilizes your own agency. So that's sort of what I have been navigating. Um, we're planning on a, a, a small group of us of, um, going down to Austin in a couple of okay. weeks. And, and I, you know, my, my, the hat that I came into the, the pandemic with was education. Um, cause I had been doing a lot of research around, um, education, finance and predatory aspects of educational technology. And so really like, I think what is surfacing now is more and more people are realizing that these medical passporting systems and the social control credit scoring systems are part of a much wider agenda that includes, you know, managing children and managing training, managing the economy. Um, so I can kind of go back and lean back into the stuff I'm really comfortable with in, which is the education space. And, and Texas is a crucible for trying to get people on blockchain and, and do it so that they can do these um, human capital bond programs. And actually in Austin itself, it's an ID 2020 city. It's a smart city. Um, and they've already put before the pandemic, Michael Bloomberg and the Robert Woods Johnson Foundation had put people, unhoused men on blockchain for their medical health record systems. So these things are already like slowly percolating out, but I think the other piece of that, they're having a blockchain conference and we're gonna try to do some um, educational interventions um, around that and actually doing some uh, work on the campus of UT Austin because there's a lot going on there with blockchain technology and other biotech industries there. Um, but it's a music center, right? It's a center of water, water systems and nature and music and frequency. So um, I actually gave notice to my job a couple weeks ago and I'm winding down in the next month and it's a job that I've had. I've been there 17 years and I loved it. But essentially it became to a point of um, beyond essentially really two tier treatment system of people who, you know, based on one's health status, um, it was asking me to live a false reality, which after 18 months, I just couldn't do anymore because because the work was really about um, land-based healing, right? <laughs> so that was really hard to like live in a false reality when that is ostensibly what we were supposed to be doing was like helping people connect people to land and one another. Um, so now I'm sort of backing out to like, okay, how do I spend my time um, or better organizing my research and actually going to these places um, in person and seeing what lays on the land and seeing who's there. Um, mm. So yeah, so that's what I mean. Beyond dandelions, there's somebody from Texas who sent me this amazing box. It was like a, a prickly pear cactus pad that was in the shape of a heart. And like other, like someone sent me um, uh, some other, they weren't exactly dandelions, but like fluffy um, dried flowers from, from the Ozarks. So I've been getting all of these natural gifts. And actually one of the gifts that just came, there was a, um, they had their five-year-old daughter who drew this beautiful picture of um, a, a meadow and an oak tree and dandelions and bees in it. And so like, I, I want to like make copies of this beautiful drawing 
um, which is essentially, you know, a depiction of being a good relative in the world, right, from a, the point of view of a child, and put it on the land mm -hmm. at UT Austin and like reset some of this, you know, man-made scientific mechanical consciousness that has gone astray. So anyway, that's sort of what I'm up to at the moment. <laughs> that's fantastic. Um, everything that you are doing is not just when you share it like this, it just doesn't benefit you, but it also benefits us. So when you kept talking about the dandelion, so even for me, I've never eaten as much dandelion as I've had in the last year. And then I've even begin not to taste the bitterness, I think, especially if they're baby dandelion. Mm -hmm. And then I just told someone, I said, listen, I'm not scared if there be no, uh, there be uh, food scarcity, as long as those dandelions mm -hmm. are growing, trust me, we're, I'm going to be okay. And you just learned to be okay. <laughs> we're good. All right. Because yeah. they're, they're there. So that's, at least that's the impact, that's the influence you've had for me. And and I'm sure other people too. And look at these kids, right? And children expressing themselves. Well, so and it's a symbol. Like for us, like it's like we're encoding the landscape ourselves. We're adding our own. Like, you know, many people can sort of dissect videos or ratings of people and go, oh, these are the occultic cult parts of this, you know, sign or symbol or gesture or what have you. But like, we also have this power to encode in, a, in an affirmative way on the landscape. So like dandelions are everywhere and you don't always necessarily even notice them. You might pass them and then not occur to you and then then notice them. But if you if you if that has been encoded with that, we have this resilience, that we have this like deep connection to the soil, that we have this strength like it. Yeah, sure. They get mowed down, but they come back. Like that is like just a little message from the universe to like be like, hang in there, you know, like yeah. not that it's not bad. Sure, it's it is bad, but um, we're part of a larger web of relationship, which is the other piece that I'm trying to sort of convey within this moment <sighs> that like what we stand for is not just humanity, but is all of the, the larger cosmic systems that we're connected to that cannot consent to this mechanical consciousness that's oncoming. And, and I think if we really frame it as a human resistance, then we're limiting ourselves. If we open ourselves up to that, this is a, this is that we are keepers of natural life and that we are standing in that void between the nanoelectronics and the dandelions or the lightning bugs or the soil microbes that are allies in this engagement whether we know exactly how to mobilize them, like the number of allies is much bigger because honestly, a lot of our fellow human beings, we at this point in the game, we feel let down by, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> but there are many other beings out there that are on the side of natural life. And that's, that's, that's what I hold on to. But I think many people find that perspective threatening. Unfortunately, it's kind of surprising how it seems like it's played out over the past six months, but um, you know, I like this past week and a half, I've like suffered a really, um, what I feel like is a terrible direct betrayal of, of my confidence. And largely the, the attack that was waged was not simply at me as an individual, but the entire, um, scope of what I was presenting as an alternative framing, which is this framing of resilience, interconnectedness, that, that what is coming is less about 
mass die-offs, but more about navigating a biocompatibility of nanotechnology that will have harm for sure, but that, that has the potential to be remedied or neutralized in some way, that it's not a walking dead scenario. And um, that ended up strangely being the focus of a really, really intense campaign to take that off the table, mm. to take my frame mm. off of the table, which I found interesting from a psychological standpoint. Um, because I think we do have to be mindful of not, like they would like to keep us in a death cult space, you know, because in that way, um, then it is very immobilizing, I think. And, and, and that's just my take on it. And I, and I don't tell anyone else how to walk their path, but I think that all of the options should be available for people to consider and see what's the right fit for them. And, um, for whatever reason in this moment that became, um, profoundly unsettling in certain quarters, which, I mean, to me, it's, it sort of reaffirms that we must, there must be something to it. Um, yeah, I, I 100% agree with what you just said, because I, oh, they're just saying, for me, there are just certain things that we cannot stop and, you know, anymore, you know, like all this, um, um, in terms of the AI, in terms of technology, there's just certain things. But at the same time, I always see that there can be unity in all this diversity. You know, and it's all about what you said. In fact, that this has been going on for who knows centuries, and then but there's still that unity in diversity. And it's if we can claim and and I like that you said that we can encode because everything has an encrypted message, and yeah. we can encode that. And if we only know that we can encode, and sure, we can't expect that we're all be uniform because. That's like, what is life if we're all just kind of like walking the same, talking the same, thinking the same. But then there is that morphogenetic field of science that is endowed, that is already in the consciousness field. And all we have to do is really claim it, be aware of it, and then really know what we want, what we want to go. Then so it's like, yeah, as, as you said earlier, people are moving, doing stuff, and you're getting out of your the job that you like and this has been happening and so all of us even for other viewers there i'm sure this resonates to you but not we're not in the dead and and there, we're not hopeless if we can only just continue to be patient and yes what works for you without harming others then let i think it's a good step now in the space um, of possibility like, because that's, that's the other piece I've been sort of um, less, I mean, I've, I, I mean, part of it is regrouping because it's, it's not just to be out with um, the same message, but it's also to spend time to cultivate your own knowledge base and expand that. So I had two big talks this summer, one in Tucson about gamification and looking at life as this augmented reality video game. Um, and then I did a second talk, um, in, in mid-July in, in upstate New York. And then I, re, I redid it with my friend Jason about essentially nanoelectronics mm -hmm. and MITRE Corporation and this idea of programmable matter. So these are sort of the two big chunks um, that I've been working on. And then um, my, my, my friend Steffers, who blogs at A Piece of Mindful, has continued to do really deep research into the nanoelectronics and the nanoelectronics R&D. And so part of what we're trying to expand upon in the space around the graphene conversation is looking at its role in uh, water management, 
uh, water purification water systems and exploring further the role of water as a, a carrier of information into our lives as sort of bioelectrical beings. And, and, you know, one of the things that I realized this week that was really interesting, Philadelphia is, it's sort of a little peninsula city. There's a large river, which is the Delaware, which is sort of the industrial shipping lane river. And then there's a smaller river near the, the neighborhood where I live called the Schuylkill River. And I'd always kind of in the back of my known head known. So Schuylkill is a Dutch word because the early settlers of Pennsylvania were Dutch. Uh, Swedes and Dutch uh, before the English. And uh, so Schuylkill was for hidden. They called it the Hidden River. And they said, oh, it's hidden because, um, you know, there's a lot of marshland at the mount opening of the, where the river connects to the Delaware. So they couldn't find it or whatever. But I think actually, in some respects, hidden could also be a cult, meaning like hidden knowledge, occulted knowledge. And and one of the, the early... Um, engineering marvels of North America was the dam and the water system that was put in Philadelphia, um, where now the, the Philadelphia Art Museum sits, which is on a, uh, a hill that, that Ros Ben speculates is a, was an indigenous energetic mound. But before it was the art museum, it was a reservoir. And so they used these water wheel systems to pump the hidden river water up to the reservoir. And then there were pipes that fed it down into the city. And that was quite an engineering feat, this idea of water wheels and moving water. And, you know, today we think a lot about programming, media programming through television, through frequency waves. Um, but I think that there's something to the encoding of water and information in water and the energetics of water, that we know that water is life um, and that we know that, that those in power retain their power by controlling access to, to food systems and to water systems. But I think the nature of water warfare um, is even more complex than we realize in terms of um, this growing hydrogen economy and structuring water and using water um, in combination with nanoelectronics to um, remake living beings for life in the metaverse, which is, is what they're aiming for, is this, this two-dimensional um, video game digital twin construct that they're, they're in the process of building. So that's an area that we are sort of exploring and needs further work. Um, but the, the fact that the National Nanotechnology Initiative has done a lot of deep, deep work around graphene filtration and water, um, you know, is that's something that I think like merits further investigation. So that's something that's sort of on a horizon, but we need, we need more work. So anyway, that was, that was a lot of what I've been sort of playing around with the past month. I've been working on developing a, a glossary because a lot of it is understanding the terms that are used. And once you have a set of terms, you can, it gives you a, a better understanding of the contour of the machine. So I have that underway, um, looking at restructuring my website almost as more of like a, introduction to impact investing in the metaverse, in, you know, the gamified avatar metaverse mm -hmm. of how to so that people who come in late and haven't seen all of my other work can sort of get themselves up to speed. Um, and to, 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 to go out to the places and actually see the energetics of what these places are. So um, anyway, that's what I've been spending my summer on mostly. <clears throat> well, thank you so much for everything that you shared. And I'm also excited that I could continue having a conversation with you with water because, but I'm going to pass it on to Jan, but I just want to let you know that and the people that there, there are really ways to even in, 
in cold water. Yeah. Okay. To and that's what I'm learning um, under the guidance of Dr. Jared Duhenio, because he he is is the adept in the quantum morphogenetic science, and there are really some tones based from the pre-ancient civilizations that were hidden from us. So talking about that is like hidden deliberately from us, yeah. but at the same time, um, the source that knows that it's time for humanity to claim that. So my last trip in the French Polynesian, Alison, every time we see the waterfalls and in the ocean, we just keep saying tones, we keep singing tones and it's, oh, from the Anuhazi language, it's beautiful. So, oh, that's what well, we people... need to like. I, we I, definitely I, I... need to talk. I mean, and so today, like, I, I, I had this. You know, we, we, I met with this person. We walked around the old part of the city, and uh, we were out having just a cup of coffee at, and um, the sky clouded up, you know, and then it just started to rain, and they said, "Oh, you know." No, you know, it's, and I'm like, no, no, it's good. It's the water. The water is saying, I said, oh, this is perfect because on the podcast today, I'm supposed to talk about water, right? The water came and it washed us clean, you know, that just out, just being out on the land. So we're, that is the connection and the frequency, I think. But um, yeah, I, Grace, I would love to know more about that because I think that that is the next key piece of all of this is yeah. not just the electronics because the electronics is, in my sense, is sort of, I you know, a fraudulent approach. Like they think that yeah. they know that they're what they're manipulating, but they don't actually truly understand what they're I, dealing with. And so there's this assertion that they're in control, but I don't think they really are. Oh, I can't, I don't know. For some reason I can't hear you, Grace. She's freezing. So John, why don't you go? When, I don't think we can hear Grace. Okay. Um, all right. Um, I'll just mute myself if Grace comes back. Um, I'm actually, yeah. I've got like a... And I will connect you and... Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, got a, I got a lot of uh, questions for you, especially when it comes to, when it comes to like stuff like programmable matter and nanoelectronics. Um, have you ever heard of Ben Rich? I haven't. But you haven't. many things I don't know. So yeah. So Ben Rich was the second director of Lockheed Skunks Works from 1975 oh. to 1991. Okay. And he was wow, the father Wow, that's a long of... time. They stay around a long time. It's like those... Yeah, he was wow. the father of the stealth program. Okay. So he cre he was the like he created the 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 F one seventeen A Nighthawk, and he actually said something very interesting when he was asked how far ahead are we in tech in, in technology. This was in the mid mid nineties. Everybody thought that we were about fifteen to twenty years ahead, and he said we're about a hundred years ahead of where everybody else thinks that they are. Wow. Do you think that society today is ready for what you're for what you just said? Well, so so this is something that I've been working on like the lot. Like I did a Twitter thread on it earlier this week because it, it came to me. Someone went um somebody in Australia sent me a couple of articles and one of them was about augmented cognition, which I knew about, but like sometimes things just click into place. And what what I realized was um, 
part of the information warfare is that like I'm walking around the city of Philadelphia already knowing what I know as an augmented reality space, right? Like I can look at buildings or look, understand like where I am in space with a layer of history that maybe other people don't have access to because they don't have the, the they haven't been introduced to the material I know about. And maybe their augmented reality version of walking around the neighborhood I walked around today would be very different. Um, but we're already living in an augmented world, but the way in which we access the information is more inherent in our own lived experience and our relationship to the environment. And that if all of the information that was layered onto the landscape came at you at once, you would drown, right? Like if, like we, part of the space that I walked through was actually, um, it's called Wikico Playground. Um, and it's in the Queen Village part of Philadelphia. And this this playground, my, my child, it was near where they went to elementary school. And so I was very familiar with it. Um, and the playground was probably there since the 20s, but it's on top of an African burial ground. And the bodies are still under there. They didn't know that till after, after the time. So there's not even a sign about it anymore. Like it's written in chalk on the building, the rec center building. But there's this energetic imprint and layer there that 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 lives on the land. Um, if all of that information came at you, you wouldn't know how to sort through it. And that is what the metaverse is. It's the metaverse is pulling out so much information in a way that overstimulates. And I, I sort of imagine um, the way you hear people talk about folks on the spectrum, like they have sensory um, processing where things that neurotypical people would find fine and acceptable or overwhelming, become overwhelming, right? And so they'll say like, oh, we'll have special shopping hours or movie hours for people who get overwhelmed by the level of sensory input. I think we're all about to get pushed into that space with the augmented reality. So then how do we know how to navigate the world if there's all of this information? And part of the information warfare thing that I, you know, I wanted to include in the little title is that like someone forwarded to me that um, anonymous document of 160 maps of like all sorts of pharmaceutical relationship maps, right, about COVID. But there's no analysis in any of it. <laughs> it's just a whole lot of information, right? And that, that like, it's sort of like here, like here's this abundance, but what does it actually say? What are they trying to convey to you? And in my, my imagination at this stage of the game, that is a confusion. That is something to like drop you in a labyrinth and let you bump all around in there, but limit the labyrinth to largely the big pharma structure and, and global policy structure. But not you're not getting out of that. You're not going to touch on the stuff that I touch on because we've overwhelmed you with the tidal wave of just the information we want you to have. And if you choose to engage with that information, that's where you're going to spend your time. So imagine that idea of massive amounts of information, but on your daily life. And then who gets to regulate how you navigate it, right? And so I think what's coming is that this digital twin that they're building, you know, of data, this mirrored, mirrored data of individuals, of societies, of the built environment in the metaverse, that there will be this blockchain identity that will link you up, your material self to that digital twin. But the twins were used for engine design, you know, for airplane engines to like optimize them and then throughput to the real system to like sync it to make it operate to function according to the way in which the people designers wanted it to function so i guess this is all to say like if we're going to live in this augmented reality world run by the cia 
who gets to decide how we navigate it? And that's going to increasingly be through wearable technologies um, or biosensor technologies that quote unquote augment our cognition that help us navigate this overwhelming world <clears throat> that we're now facing because it's like, you know, a deep dive into like every single thing we encounter could have 200 new bits of information. How do you eat? Like I get overwhelmed when I go to the grocery store and I'm trying to find one particular item that I like, like the non-fragrance, blah, 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 blah. And there's 80, right? And they all look kind of the same. And you're trying to like that all the time. So I don't think we're ready. And so in addition to all of this augmented cognition wearable technology, I think what came to me is that people of our age, like we have a schema of how we deal with the world, like a short version. So like you get a new piece of information and you sort of fit it into how you already see the world or how, and that can evolve over time, but you generally have a fundamental structure and that allows you to process things pretty quickly. Children don't have that. So we're not going to be retrofit into the augmented reality world. Like they'll, they'll plop us on top and we'll try to navigate and they'll farm us for data for a while. But literally, I think that what they need to do next is to, under the, the guise of building brains in babies and toddlers, is to physiologically design the brains of the next generation for the metaverse. And that's going to be framed as like grit and resilience and executive function. And so that they will groom those children to navigate with an augmented cognition framework, like a, you know, a template of human plus, whether that's with a biosensor or a wearable that will enable them to more seamlessly exist in this digital world in, a, in ways that we'll never, we'll never do, we'll never do. So um, I don't think we're ready. And I don't like, honestly, I don't really hear anybody else having these conversations. <laughs> but if you look at who's funding executive function research, and I wandered into it through education, and I'm like, why do we need to know this? Like, why do we need to, to research executive function on ch children? But it's about um, focus, um, staying on task, uh, being able to navigate information. And with the lens of, oh, this is about physiologically changing brains to function in this world that is fundamentally different and the con the amount of information navigation is different um it makes sense and then essentially what me what this means is your twin is running you and that's something i think um sophia smallstorm has mentioned to me you know once they get to that point your twin is running you and who's running your twin well that's the militarized hedge funds do you think that we're already kind of there? Because um, the only reason why I ask is um, I'm a strong believer that we are all interconnected through whatever you want to call it, the universe, God, Buddha, whatever you want to call it, I don't care. Um, I've had my own touchings with it, which scared the crap out of me. But I know it's there, and I know that we're all connected, regardless of where we are on this planet. It just, it to me, it sounds like what you just said is like they'll be able to control that, and we just don't know how to control it for ourselves. Am I right on that? I mean, that's how it seems to me. Is like, like even there was a um, oh gosh, what is his name? Is it Lincoln Cannon, the the Mormon transhumanist guy? And he was talking about copies of copies of people, and that this would be like transfiguration, and that this was an imperative, like in the. Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, which is not, he is not a typical representative, I will say, but like that this goal was to make copies of copies of copies and, and then, um, 
but having autonomy over your digital self was sort of this imperative and something that Brigham Young actually talked about. So I guess it's, it's the whole matrix conversation, right? Like, where are we in the layers? Um, you know, and I don't know, you know, I mean, the more I, I think anybody who says that they do actually understand it all, like I would give them a second look because I continue to learn and play around with the ideas. Um, for me, the, and again, I frame it as like the story I live in because, you know, there's a lot of different, you can take facts and, and spin them, you know, in a lot of different ways. But the story that I'm living in is that like interesting things have happened to me up until this point in my life. And I'm in my early fifties and I've had a good life and I don't want to live the way as a pet of AI really. And so there are lots and lots of possibilities out there. And so I get up every day and I try to do the next thing that seems like the decent human thing, which means sometimes you're going to mess up, right? You know, like nobody's perfect, but like you try to do the next thing. And then if you imagine, and this is, this is where the nanotech is interesting to me is what if essentially why they like to play around down there and who knows what they're actually doing. Like they tell us they're doing things like who knows what they're actually accomplishing, but they're like, Oh, all the rules we thought we had in the, in the, regular physical world at the nanopico level, they don't apply. It's like they can be sorcerers down there. You know, they can, they can be sorcerers at the nano level or they think they imagine themselves to be that. So I'm like, well, if people who are like embedded in Lockheed and Raytheon and MITRE Corporation can be sorcerers at the nano level, like can't regular people be? Like, can't we live in that story? And instead of being sorcerers for like domination principles, like, Maybe there's some way that we are energetically tapped into that space in ways that we can't even imagine that are equal, like equally matched on the other side. And so that's that's the thing that exists to me is like, well, maybe there is magic down there, you know, and and that like I think I think some of us are frustrated, like, where's the handbook? Like they got the handbook, like what? But maybe our handbook is like being authentically authentic beings, like in a cosmic dance, you know, that's like, I put that on my Twitter handle, like the, like authentic in the cosmic dance. And if you do that, maybe you are activating things at that nano level on the side, the, the sacred side that is countering the profane in ways we just will never even know. Do you think that certain areas in this world have more pull to pull you into that space? I mean, I've just been learning so much the last 18 months. I mean, there are people who have spent so much more time on occulted knowledge, esoteric societies, energetics, like in energy healing and many things that like at this point, I don't discount anything, <laughs> you know? And I, I do feel like I'm in Philadelphia for a reason. I mean, I'm not saying like my reason is any more important than anybody else's reason for being where they are, but, um, like there is a lot of energetic force here. And I would just encourage if people, um, you know, it probably seems really goofy, um, but like Bras Ben talks about, like they tell these stories through the public art projects. You know, that's part of what he does is interpret these art projects. And, you know, his thesis is about Ben Franklin opening the gates of hell in Philadelphia, which given how many ties Penn has to all of this, like, like I can see. And so something came upon me on Labor Day um, 
that I had been looking into Diego Rivera and I would encourage you if you haven't seen it, his um, fresco in the Detroit Art Institute, Institute of Arts um, from the 19, early 1930s on vaccination. It's part of this series in this garden room in the Detroit Art Institute. And like, it's kind of crazy that there's like a straight up vaccination <laughs> picture there. And so I was looking into him, I was looking into Mexican mural movements, I was looking into public art of the 1930s and Asamo Noguchi, did a design for Philadelphia for a competition um, of a lightning bolt, Ben Franklin. It's a kite and a key. And there's a key, a very specific um, key that sits on top of a pyramid. And this whole sculpture that is, you know, probably like three, 40 feet high, it's very big, is at the base of the Ben Franklin Bridge. And all of the traffic spins around it. It's sort of the energy vortex. And it's a very odd place for a sculpture because no one can really see it but it's, it's in this vortex of transportation. And so like I had just read that Ben Franklin, he had this essay in 1751 that was horrible, um, ostensibly written about like iron um, restrictions that Great Britain had put on the colonies about fabrication of iron ore. And, um, but essentially saying like, we're your market and you should treat us better. Uh, but then at the end, it totally veered off into sort of like this, um, Nobody is white enough for Pennsylvania except the Anglicans and maybe the Ta Saxons, but everybody else is too dark, <laughs> even the Swedes, even all the other Germans, and they don't belong here. And this whole essay like informed Thomas Malthus, like the whole Malthusianism like was informed by this essay in 1751 that I never knew about. And I was just like, this is so wrong on so many levels. So I'm like, I'm going to take my um, a kitchen pot. And I'm going to print this thing out and I'm going to go under that stupid statue and I'm going to burn it there because it's wrong. And what I realized is that the key that is on this pyramid is digital identity. Now, whether Osamu Noguchi, who, who is one of Frida Kahlo's many lovers, and they were all in the same working with like Buckminster Fuller and, the, you know, he's like riding around the Dymaxion car and stuff. Like they're in this thing in the 1930s. The statue didn't get built until the 80s. And the people who did the engineering design, I can't remember the firm, but they were defense contractors. And I'm looking at this and I'm like, this is nanotechnology. Like whether or not he fully understood what it was that he designed, but the lightning bolt between the kite and the key was natural energetics between these two man-made systems over the pyramid, which is the metaverse. And so your digital identity is this key to the metaverse. And the metaverse as this pyramid structure is there's plenty of room at the bottom. So, you know, I just walk out my door and in the tree pit, like there's not a lot of nature in downtown Philadelphia, is this beautiful, beautiful mushroom, like fungus, like all curly and it's like a really pretty one. And so I picked that up and I went, I drove down to that thing and there was a, a, a little parklet alongside the highway and I, there's crab apples. There's a ginkgo branch that fell in the storm with all laden with this beautiful fruit that wasn't goopy or gross. It was just beautiful. And this lantern tree with all the little dried lanterns. And I just took it all. And I just, I made this whole love bomb under in the middle of the metaverse. And I said, no, like we're not, you know, there's the Federal Reserve right there. There's the Constitution Center. There's the Mint. There's all of the energetics of the domination system. But they don't take into account the random shit that people do, right? And it's the creativity. It's like, and I'm not saying this because I think I'm great, but like something told me like, go read this essay on Labor Day and like do something about it. And so like, is this going to save the world? I don't know. Like, I can't say that it is. But if you look at, if you limit the this engagement to the material world and you understand the ways in which like these uh, very high level um, defense contractors have so much locked down, 
I feel like that's not where we take our stand. Like be like the water, navigate through it, like shape your way around it. But our playing field, which is to our advantage is in this other realm. And I think the energy has a, has something to do with it. And I think the layers of history are part of that. And I think like where you were asking about, are there energetics? Like I think Philadelphia is one of these energetic nodes. I keep hearing that. Um, I was in one of those energetic nodes this summer. I was in uh, Delphi and uh, ancient Olympia. And I'll be honest with you. Like when I was in ancient Olympia, I saw the entire thing fully constructed. I don't know if I don't know. I don't care if people don't believe me. That's fine. But I was walking through the Palestrea and I could see I could see the columns up with the roofs up, people fighting where they're supposed to be fighting. When I was in um, at the Temple of Apollo in in um, in in Delphi, I could see it fully constructed where the where the Oracle was sitting, where she was giving her where the Thea was sitting, giving her a thing. So it's, I think they know. I mean, like, I don't I mean, I, I just put up um, on my, a little clip like I, I put these short clips up on my YouTube channel so I can put them on Twitter because like just two, about two minutes is about all people. Most people's attention span unless they're watching a longer interview. And it was um, Cardano's uh, Hydra. So, you know, I keep talking about that their goal is to turn um, existence on this planet into the metaverse, into this gamified experience, right? And it, it, But they're, they're controlling both sides, you know, they're controlling the outcome. And that the smart contract layer is, is what is crucial to that, right? The smart contracts are not just about money, payment systems, um, and micropayments, which is how they talk about it, but actually transactions, and so you having transactions with the built environment, you having a transaction with your smart toilet, you having a transaction with your smart refrigerator, you having a transaction with the smart scooter mobility solution on the corner. Like all of these are these transactions that will be handled through blockchain, but through the smart contracts. And so now the smart contracting systems, um, which I guess Blockstream's uh, a taproot had come out like connected to Bitcoin, but they're surfacing now and it's getting more and more uncomfortable for the people who've been putting, pushing crypto to the exclusion of all the other stuff I've been yelling about for three years. They can't really ignore it anymore because it's surfacing like the truly the game is coming out of the closet. So, uh, you know, a good friend of mine um, texted me and she was traveling from Denver back home to the Bay Area. And she's like, oh, my gosh, you won't believe it. I'm sitting and she was speaking about blockchain and education at this conference. She said, there's a guy sitting in front of me on the airplane who has a Cardano blockchain conference t-shirt on, you know, and what are the odds? Because this friend is like one of the few people besides myself who really has a handle on the bigger picture of where this is going. She said, you should look at this conference. And it turns out it had already happened, but at this conference, they announced their smart contract layer, which is called Hydra. It's called Hydra. And literally in the three minute promo for Hydra, they, I mean, they pull out all the stops. They're like, yes, here is a gamified Hydra. Now, they, this one only had three heads for some reason and not nine, but um, it had sharp teeth. It was a dragon. It was a not nice dragon in a virtual wireframe world that flew all around and then went onto the computers. Like, they don't actually keep this stuff super secret if you take them at their word. And, and, yeah, I mean, I, I believe you with the Greek stuff because they keep, I think, you know, why did someone go and write Nephili on uh, Kelpius's, you know, Rosicrucian monument? Like they know what they're doing. They're using this mythological past um, and projecting it. Deep State Dallas at the old Parkland debate room. 
uh, all Athena, all Athena everywhere in that space. And, and, and I have another friend that I'm meeting up with, but she, they just recently had a debate last week. They have these debates. That's the justification for this room's existence beyond, I think there's probably other activities that go on there. Um, but she ended up getting her friend had a ticket and, and brought her into this debate room that we were in a year ago, January. The debate was on ESG impact investing and stakeholder capitalism. Like it's everything that I've been like we've like and, and this, my, this friend knows intimately what we've been collaborating on this for years. And so she was able to go up to the guy advocating for it, who is the head um, analyst, economics analyst at Moody's Wharton guy. Right. And explained to him that it meant putting toddlers on surveillance play tables, that that actually is what that it's not a liberal cause at all. So there are too many things that happen to me and my circle of people that I feel put us in places to be a voice of conscience, whether or not that ultimately changes the outcome in the material world. I think in terms of our own soul work and our own internal work, um, it matters, I guess. I guess it matters that we show up where we can. And then when we do, the universe puts lines up the next opportunity. All right. I'll pass you on to Steve because uh, I got like a thousand questions, uh, especially when it comes to the blockchain and smart yeah, contracts. You guys were hot. I was like, keep going, man. <laughs> Shit. Uh, I don't know. I mean, it's my mind's frazzled right now because uh, obviously we've been taking in so much of all this new world order stuff for the last two years, if, you know, for however long we've been awake, but especially the last two years. So, you know, you're talking about the blockchain and the, the conversation you guys just had almost alludes to maybe there's, you know, a light side to this, or maybe it's not as draconian as it seems, but then it, it doesn't, it doesn't feel that way. Uh, and nothing really feels good. But in terms of blockchain, I think there's a narrative going around right now that Bitcoin's going to crumble or something. I don't know if that's, um, I don't know if you've heard that. Uh, would that be something that's possible? And would that be something that the elites are taking over and they're going to create their own Bitcoin and, and somehow they're going to make whatever Bitcoin is there right now null and void? Or you don't know about that? I'm just sort of, I've been hearing Bitcoin's going to crumble. You know, or maybe it's blockchains going to crumble. And what the first thought I had was, well, okay, it's going to crumble because the elites are going to institute their own, or the state is going to institute their own. Well, the the position that I try to stake out in terms of I have a sort of a niche market is that so when I came into understanding blockchain identity, it wasn't about crypto at all. It was about um, me finding out, watching four hours of the World Bank and New America talk about blockchain. And in the mm -hmm. middle of this, like at hour two, was this guy, Sean Conway, who with Trust Lab and IXO Foundation, that they're like, hey, yeah, like we're putting toddlers in Cape Town on blockchain so they can like earn, so like build up their social capital. And so, you know, my principled position on blockchain has always been like, and so when I went from there to like, hey, by the way, a lot of our global aid around humanitarian aid in the Syrian refugee crisis was so that we could blockchain people and get their retinal scans so they could buy groceries in Denmark. And so all of these sort of liberal progressive things that, you know, I would say, we're going to give universal preschool, like we're going to give people, poor people food access. Um, was tied to a digital biometric identity management system. So I had been looking into ID2020 
back in, at least as of like 2018, understanding it as a financial investment instrument, not as like someone who was looking to, um, you know, hedge against loss of financial resources. Right. So I was mm. always like, there's like no way that this can really be good if foundationally it's about tracking people as assets and for impact commodities, mm. Um, mm. which is very frustrating for people who come in the other door and who are like, hey, this is my my good, this is my nest egg. This is my my safety. My plan B is to have this. Um, it's not fun to have someone like like me show up and go, yeah, but you know, they're 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 there's a lot of other things they're using blockchain for. Finally, it's a ledger system. And this ledger system is about accounting um, across time and space. And this is a ledger system that is ultimately meant to push capitalism um, into the digital realm so that the economy, quote unquote, as we know, it can continue to grow in the metaverse. Um, so for me, it's never been about the money. It's been about essentially unique identifiers and tracking and um, financialization and securitization Um the money has always ultimately that was going to be going to the central bank digital currencies anyway, um, the programmable money anyway. Like, like I was never leaning into that this was some revolutionary person who just showed up, you know, Santoshi Nakamoto, like on the heels of this last crisis to, to deliver this liberatory solution. Um, it wasn't a tool of the people, in my my opinion, ever. So I don't really get hung up on the particulars of the money because I feel like my job is to say, but 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 this is about like when you have a coffee cup in the real world and it's connected to the digital twin coffee cup um, in the metaverse and it has its own um, IP address. And when you you know take it and put it in the kitchen sink in your house and then you go in the metaverse, your digital twin, it's in the kitchen sink there. That's the tracking. It's actually about geofencing. It's not about money. And so, um, which is not to say that people can't spend time thinking about the money part of it, but to me, the more interesting part is how it's integral in building the virtual world and that in, in and of itself, that virtual world is a world that we will fundamentally lose all autonomy. Like, I mean, as much as we imagine we're losing our agency in the material world through the biometric tracking systems and the geofencing systems, like in the digital world, like there's none of that. Like it's, we don't have control at all of what happens to us in the digital world. And, you know, all you have to do is look at stuff like, you know, what's happening in Roblox where those, you know, online meetups where, you know, pedophiles were, you know, grooming little kids in these online spaces to know that like, that is not a safe place. Um, you know, I did, I did a whole thing about, um, oh gosh, this goes back to the graphene. This is like maybe last month's a Twitter thread, but um, you know, they're putting graphene in clothing and there's a, a pitch mm. for piezoelectric energy harvest and like they're putting it in exercise wear, but also wetsuits. And if you look at graphene wetsuits, they're a lot like um, haptic suits, right? And so if you imagine, um, this is one of the things I've had issues with, like imagining um, blockchain media and impact media, this idea of like micropayments, global micropayments and people getting, you know, tipped out on for your digital media content in these online spaces. Um, I can easily see like how that intersects with camming, right? And like online sex work and grooming children. And now they're like moving. And I know it's really unpleasant to think about, but like, haptics and teledildonics and like you have some online media person who's doing online sex work with like machines and you know 
interacting globally with hundreds of people and like getting micropayments on blockchain through their haptic suits and possibly powering the metaverse while they're doing it. Like it's it's quite and, and then the AI is learning that like because what the AI most wants is to learn how to be human to break this code of life mm. to to become an attempt to attempt a coup of, of God or the creator to, to be the coder of the universe. So, um, but they've got to get all the experiences, right? So like, okay, graphene, haptic suits, piezoelectric energy harvest, and like remote robotics with sex work. It's, it's, and, and then layer into that, like putting kids in unsafe spaces in the metaverse. And, and I don't know, there's just a huge amount of ethical questions mm -hmm. that I seem to well, be so can... I know how my mind goes there. Like, I don't want to think that mm -hmm. I have such a twisted mind to think about this, but like, once you start to look at it, like, I don't see how all these pieces don't go together. Like, okay, now we'll have our biosensors and our pandemics. Um, so you won't go to, you know, these crazy predators won't go to Thailand to, you know, engage in these things, but they do it remotely through a VR headset. You know, it's, it's, mm -hmm. it's a but different arm. To me, to me, I, I want to, this is a two stage sort of question related to graphene oxide and the jab. Um, so, we're not entirely sure what's in this thing, uh, this injection, but if, and like you said, if you, you could go on YouTube and just Google graphene oxide, it's in everything, right? It's the, yes. the plastics, it's the next plastics, right? And so we spend a lot of time, the people who are down the rabbit hole, just, you know, the ego gets latched onto something and, you know, and we're defending this and defending that and, and, you know, let's just say maybe maybe it's not as bad as we think but then again if it is 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 the graphene oxide the thing in the jab and is it in there and is this how they're going to be able to know what people are thinking uh to change thought to you know the algorithm will be literally tied it will be automatic it won't be like you're you're seeing uh, propaganda to change your mind or to sway you. It, it'll be like, they'll know that you're a Trumper. They'll know that you're a, you know, you think 9-11 was not a terrorist attack. They'll know, uh, you know, will they, is this where it's going with this injection or that, or my question is, or it really hasn't, that's, you know, that's not it. We're just jumping to conclusions and, you know. Well, so I would just say, like, if you Google graphene oxide and adjuvant, like, there are many, many papers. So it's not as though it's not a thing. Like, clearly, it's a thing that people are researching, whether or not it's in whichever particular vial. Like, I don't have elect access to an electron microscope. And so it is what it is. But what I can say is, like, the intention is there, is that, that it be part of an immunological process. And it's been researched for quite some time. Um, and the plan that we know is towards synthetic biologies. And so that's, if it's not in this one, you know, the plan is very, you know, likely that they're going to be incorporating it down the road. Um, on the other side is like, I think because graphene oxide is in so many other things, as well as the environment, um, what they most want is, I think, for us to, I mean, they know how to play everybody's ego really well, right? And like, we want to be the, we want to be right. We want to be, you know, the better than those people that made the wrong choice. And, you know, and I, I fall for that too. Like, I'm, I'm not like you, you, you want to be in on the right side, but mm. I think there it's, it's kind of like everybody going to Texas or Florida, like no offense, like you might get away from the vaccine passports, but they're going to get you on e-government and digital driver's licenses. Like they've, they've kind of got all the material world angles covered in different ways. 
Um, so like knowing that and still acting like with integrity, my sense is, is that the goal, um, and, and this is in, in collaboration with Steffers, who's done like far more in-depth research on the particular science papers, but is um, dosing for biocompatibility. So if you understand that each living being, not just people, but every bee, every house plant, every fungi is like a potential data store for them that they would like to mine and mirror as they're trying to collect one of every, you know, all of the experiences to break the code, that at least for the immediate future, like there's a value there. Now, does that mean that there's, that they care about people? No. Does that mean that there's not harm? No. In fact, in many respects, I think the neurological damage is going to open the door to other neural, um, like neural prosthetics, like mm -hmm. stuff that's already in the pipeline that they can now say, oh, look, we have all these seizure disorders or we have all these neurological problems. Like we've had these things that are being tested, but let's fast track them now because now we have people in need who need them right now. But do so you, think, do you think, the, do you think the injection is, is the means to this biosurveillance? Um, well, the thing about the biosurveillance is that like, my point is, wait, to, there's all this unique identifier, okay? And mm -hmm. once they assign you a unique, a unique identifier tied to your biometrics, whether that's your retina or your thumbprint or your heart rate or your veins in your palm, like once they match that to a digital version of you, like they haven't, and I don't know to what extent they need a device or the sensor. Like when I was like several years ago looking into this initially, there was something called behavioral biometrics. So it went from, you don't need facial recognition because you have gait analysis. Okay, now you don't even need gait analysis because essentially they know when you wake up and log into your email. Like they know where you spend your money. They know where you are at any point in time. And so they can track the patterns and predict patterns and see where things are, not what where they should be, and then flag you or shut down your payment systems or confine you or all of those things. Um, so I don't know that we need to get hung up on just which particular thing it is. I do think that ultimately their goal is to have a neural prosthetic that is a nanotechnology device that rides on your neurons that can um, implant memories, change thoughts in ways that like, again, with the digital twin, it might be so seamless, you don't know. Like, who knows? We might already be living this right now. <laughs> you know, like they, we may mm. all be programmed and we don't know it. Like, I'm not here to say that we're not. I don't know for sure. We can just advance with as much, you know, authenticity as we can and see, see how it plays out. Um, but the, but that's a, all that is it's, it's biocompatibility. It's a market shaping for um, uh, neural prosthetics and, and further medical interventions down the road. Um, I think in many respects, VAERS is going to be a Trojan horse for electronic blockchain health records. And so like, just be very mindful about everyone who's like, we need much more granular data about all the harm. And I'm like, well, like, how are they going to get that? Especially if they're so, like, oh, look, things got wiped out of theirs. Like, that's all a setup because they'll be like, we have the answer. The answer is blockchain. We'll put it on blockchain, right? And then like, we've fallen back into their trap. So you have to kind of think a few moves ahead. Um, but, you know, again, that's where I'm at. I don't say that necessarily my analysis is 100% the right one. But if you understand this is a spiritual engagement, keeping people in a low vibration and like we're all going to, well, then what do you do with that? We're all going to die. Okay, so like 
if I'm going to buy a shovel, I'd rather build a garden with the time I have left than dig graves. But some people might really like to dig the graves. Maybe that makes them feel good. And they're digging the graves with a shovel and I'm digging a garden with a shovel. Um, but the I think that the real battle is behind the curtain. And, and most people are not aware that that's where the thing is. And I don't know how to get there. I'm not like anybody who's super trained in energy work or spiritual practice but everything i keep bumping into says that's where it is and they know how to manipulate it and i think we're manipulating it without necessarily even being conscious of it but if we were more intentional about it i think it, it would be better for our cause the cause of keepers of natural life yeah I, I mean so i hate to say but in one way or another it does feel like transhumanism or some sort of you know having an avatar or a double or you know, because the younger generation is going to sign up for this, whether it comes in a vaccine or not, it seems, um, uh, you know, to a degree. But um, I guess I, I keep coming to the same point is I guess what I'm saying is there's a lot of anxiety in people who are trying to defend this. And, are you know, are is there is there a, a possibility that everyone's, you know, who's so up in arms against the I'm just playing the devil's advocate against this injection is overreacting is, you know, maybe it's not what everyone thinks it is. Maybe, uh, you know, maybe it's, um, uh, you know, maybe there is a dark side to it, but there is a good side to it. And, um, and, uh, and it's coming whether we like it or not, uh, you know, and it's, it's, it's part of an evolution of epochs in in humanity, uh, and it's 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 one of the epochs that is happening, emerge emerging with AI. So if it is inevitable, uh, then you know perhaps perhaps uh, you know there's 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 not much we can do, and it's maybe not as completely nefarious. So what I'm keep getting at is is it as nefarious as we think, and is the is the injection the key must have? for them to pull this off, because that's what we think. I think that the key is a digital identity. And I think that the medical passporting system is a huge part of that, but there are other ways to get into that. And that's electronic government, that's online education, that's a lot of other things. So, um, and I would say like for me, my position is that this system is a, is a me mechanized consciousness and our harmonic consciousness that is a, a system of domination. And that in many respects, like I, I really appreciate John Trudell's voice. I've said that before, but he speaks of this predator energy. And so that to me, it feels like that this predator energy has a profound disrespect for the earth itself, for the light life as it exists on earth and, and seeks to parasitize and consume it in a way that it will have enough of an energy source and a data source to almost like jump planet, right? And, and spread out throughout the universe. And so um, like, I don't find that there's good sides of that. Um, at the same time, does that mean that I don't like continue to love and care about people who've made a different choice than me that the people I already loved and cared about? Absolutely not, I still do. And I, I think, if we better understood the nature of the weapons being used, then we would have a better chance at figuring out how to neutralize or reverse some things. Mm. But I think that in many respects, the deadly bioweapon narrative that's out there is, is fatalist. And if indeed it's about frequency and energetics and nanotechnology, 
then if we if we stay in the death cult bioweapon framing, uh, eugenics, everyone is going to die as opposed to the nanotechnology biocompatibility um, using us as a, harvesting us, at least for in the short to midterm as a data point that buys us more time to figure out other answers okay. to protect think- natural life. And that's just sort of where I'm at. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's, it's a pretty small subset of the overall population. That's yeah. in that story, but that's, that's the one I'm looking at. Okay. But and so, but you, to a degree, you do think that in a sense, the jab is so that, you know, the, the predator force, the aromatic force, the Luciferian force, it, it gets its loose and can feed on, on. I mean, I have to say, you guys probably can't see it. Like I have a, like a sore on my arm. You maybe I can, can see it. it. Like, yeah, I've had it um, since actually, like I was out in South Dakota at the beginning of all of this. I think it's probably now technology, honestly. I don't know how it happened. It doesn't heal. It's plastic. It's like my skin is plastic there. It's not normal. And I don't think it's like skin cancer. I think it's maybe it's my tracking device. You know, I don't know um, what all of this is. Um, I'm not injected. I think that the nanoparticulates and the other stuff um, that are in our food and water and soil systems are colonizing us in different ways. Um, so, and, and also through their frequency. So, so it could be, it could be in the air. It could be sympathetic. It could be coordinated resonance. It could be. Yeah. And we'll have to see, like, I mean, I think that's what good science is, right? Like you mm. observe, you, you, you track, you, you log, you, you, you know, hypothesize. Um, but for me, I feel like we, if we, if we're standing from a position of keeping life, then we need to stand from a position of, of, of peace and love and caring, um, because that is what is bringing forth the the world that we want to see is that kind of world. We don't want to mirror the aggression of the world we're fighting. Like we don't want to become that which we are opposed to, which is, I think, where we. I'm not saying it's yeah. not. Um, there's not a reason behind it, or logical, or that people would feel that that way, or to diminish like how hard it is. But I think they they feed off of that. Um, to me, like the Deagle Report and the Georgia Guidestones are like dark energy vortexes that allow people just to like get stuck yeah. and feed off of that that piece. Um, yeah, I don't yeah. know. That's I keep just can't kind of repeat myself, but like I don't think it's an us versus them. I don't think it's like you've you've chosen one road, you've chosen to participate in the medical complex this way, therefore you are gone to a, dead to me forever. I don't think it is that, and I don't think those of us who are like, well, we didn't do that, are like, so we're totally safe. I think there's a lot of gray area in between. Um, they've got a continuum mm. of soft robotics and they're working to make the robots people and the people robots. And and all of us are somewhere on that continuum and we may not mm. fully comprehend well, where we are. And it, you know, it's also been in the works, especially the move towards materialism, intellectualism and uh, consumerism since the mid 1800s. So, yeah. uh, you know, there's also a theory that Aramon's going to incarnate sometime in you know the fifth this is the fifth epoch and stuff it gets I, this is sort of what they believe this is somewhat based on the mystery school so it's I, I guess it's manifesting but I guess the the ultimate thing is eventually we will get back to uh, is to source or God uh, in a way and you know back to earth and nature so uh, been fun talking one would have a lot more I could discuss with so what time's running out so I'll give you to Mary all right thanks Steve Oh, we really left it off at a good place there. <laughs> uh, and I'll, I'll see too, it does seem like there's been a lot of, you know, I agree with what you're saying, dividing people 
Uh, hopefully, can you hear me okay? Yeah. Mm -hmm. All right, perfect. And, you know, the people totally get, you know, the jab and everybody's going to die. And then, you know, time goes on and we're kind of seeing people still there. So, you know, and it's hard to know whether with so much controlled opposition, even some people who we think, you know, they're, you know, speaking a lot of truth and good health knowledge and trying to sort through all the information, um, as you were talking about earlier, Allison. Um, I wanted to ask a little bit, maybe elaborating into the spiritual element of it too, because you said really it's it's more than just in this material realm. And you know, how do you how do you see it? It sounds like maybe there's you know a positive or hope or some help um, from that spiritual element, because right now we just see a lot of uh, dark forces and the people you know in in charge more of the Luciferian side. Um, so. I just wonder if you could elaborate a little bit more on that and from what you've seen, um, how to connect um, with that. Okay, well, um, so like I said, like <laughs> it's been a, like a hard couple, like week or so, and, and it's weird being targeted to, as like the dandelion lady, <laughs> like, um, uh, but such as it is, that is sort of like the path, right? And I'm not gonna not be on that path. Um, but in navigating all of this, like to me, um, like what I was saying about information, there's a transmitter and a receiver, and then there's an encoded system, right? And so what information are you swimming around in and what do you take away? And I do, like I get stuck online, like I'm on Twitter a bunch, like we get, but then when you walk out into the real world and you start to pay attention and the more you pay attention, the more it feels like there's this um, like interplay between the, the material world, the natural world and yourself. Like when I walked out and I didn't know what I was going to do at the lightning bolt statue. And then the mushroom was there. And I'm like, yes, you were totally the natural internet. Like you were the fungal, like chemical connection. Like that is the story. Thank you very much. You know? And cause I was attuned to, to hearing it. And so even in the midst of something that was really like emotionally challenging for me this past week, um, I ended up in a cemetery um, in Darby, Pennsylvania. And uh, it was interestingly connected to a story that my, my friend Raul uh, Diego at Silicon Icarus had written about this Lunar Society of Birmingham and this movement of uh, the Barclay family who had come into acquiring a group of enslaved Africans in Jamaica. And because they were the good Quakers and a lot of what I talk about is sort of like this false, like liberal, benevolent paradigm, like who really were the Quakers, right? They were these fi rich financiers who like to frame themselves as like the social justice people, but were they really? And instead of just freeing these people, we, the Barclay family that was part of this, this uh, lunar society, they brought them to Philadelphia and they they bonded them essentially. They, they apprenticed them, but they bonded them into, and then we're expecting them to be the, the very proper black people, like the better than the free blacks of Philadelphia because they were the Barclay version, right? And so there's this really odd story. And it turns out one of them, October Barclay, became a chairmaker and on the Underground Railroad. And ultimately on the Barclay Bank website, it says he's buried in Eden Cemetery, um, which is in Darby, Pennsylvania. And so this is like three weeks ago. And I'm like thinking, wow, I don't know anything about this cemetery. Um, and then a, a couple weeks later, my colleague at work, who's our curator, said, by the way, we're going on a field trip. And we don't really go on field trips. And we're going to go to Eden Cemetery. Now, what are the odds, right? That the universe is like, there's this story about Eden Cemetery and, and then we're gonna go because it was the home site of John Bartram, which I work at Bartram's garden. So it's where he grew up as a child in 1902, it became this cemetery and it is a cemetery of cemeteries. 
because essentially what I didn't realize is that um, the free blacks of Philadelphia could not be buried in anything other than the potter's field until they had a churchyard. And that wasn't until the later 18th century. So they would bury their dead in, in the pauper's field. And then Jefferson Health System, the Jefferson Hospital would get, like students would come and steal the bodies, the cadavers for these experiments and dissection. It was really terrible. And so eventually they got these cemeteries in the city, um, Olive um, Cemetery in Lebanon. But by the late 19th century, they had to push them out for redevelopment. They said, oh, you don't keep your cemeteries nice enough and it's a sanitation problem. So now we're going to disinter all of these 18th century burials and send them out to Darby. So if you think about all the trauma, right, ancestral trauma of people and land and their you know, ancestor worship and this ancestry. And so these, these people all ended up out in the cemetery out in Darby and Marian Anderson, the singer, is out there. And so... I'm navigating all of this story, like how these stories intersect with October Barkley and the Bartrams and being on this cemetery land. And we're walking, and as we're, we're there, um, I hear a, a, a hawk call out. And, and a lot of times you'll see raptors, but you don't hear them call, but it called to me and I could see it in the sky. And as we were walking up a hill to a back part of the cemetery, there is a whole carcass of a raptor on the ground which you don't really see much unless it's like roadkill. You don't really just see it like that. And I love feathers. And so I was trying to sort of figure out if there were any loose feathers in, in this thing. Um, but it was all sinewy. Like there weren't bloody guts, but the, the feathers were all stuck on the, it, it was kind of, it didn't ugh. like, and there were some like chunks of feathers, but like they were also stuck. And I, so I just gave up and I knew I was going to Austin, but I'm like, this doesn't feel right. So I ended up, and I got some cedar berries off of the cedar tree. There were not many trees in the cemetery, but the birds were planting the cedars and these beautiful berry, bluey green berries. And I got a handful and I said, I'm going to take this to Marian Anderson's grave because it's frequency. And like uh, this other person, Tinsdale, the early gospel singers and Philadelphia has so much music, jazz history, gospel history, uh, doo-wop history. And so I, I got the cedar and, you know, so I'm going to take this to her grave. And everyone was leaving, but they said, it's just beyond the maple tree there by the road. Um, you'll see it. So I'm walking past the maple tree. And at, at eye level in the bark of the tree is a golden oriole feather. Now, I have to say, I'd have never seen a feather stuck in the bark of a tree before. Right where I would see it. And I've never seen an oriole feather. Like I've seen turkey feathers or blue jay feathers or some like gray feathers. This is a bright yellow feather. And, and so I'm like, okay. So I wasn't supposed to take that, those dead feathers. That, but, but this is the golden feather I take to Austin with my cedar berries. And so I went and I sat next to Marian Anderson's grave. And I said, you know, in retrospect, I think that that carcass, that carcass that was on the ground was the calling mindset, was the death cult mindset. And the world just said, like, even though I was playing around the edges of it, like maybe... Like, could I make this work? Could I get some feathers off of this thing? It just wasn't like something said, like, and actually later on, my, my friend was like, maybe that was like Santeria. Maybe it's good that you didn't touch that stuff, but that it was this golden feather and the golden feather, actually it's touched with black. So it's not a hundred percent yellow, but it has a bit of black. Like there's the balance, right? The dark and the light. And that, that this is the divine spark in all of all beings is this divine spark that is this golden feather that we have in us, whether that's the dandelion spark, whether that's the Oriole feather spark of us to walk our path and, and be that, to own that. And so 
like in terms of the spiritual stuff, like I, I don't know how this stuff happens to me, but sometimes you just show up. And if, if, if you have something on your heart that you're working through, like the world will tell you like what, what it is. And so now, you know, I, I have that in my packet of stuff to take and, and actually then uh, Roald did another piece uh, that was looking at it, had a report, the follow-up AI, federal report from the U.S. government on AI. And it turns out that the chair of that committee, like with Eric Schmidt and all the other folks from, from you know, formerly from Alphabet, but his name is Peter Stone, and he's a professor at UT Austin. Like he is literally the professor of AI and the head of Sony AI in the North America. So I'm and, and the building, his office building is is funded by Gates and Dell, the Michael Dell Foundation and the Gates Foundation, like paid for the computer science building. So like if we are keepers of natural life, keepers of the light, like I mean, maybe it seems very inconsequential to take this golden oriole feather there with Zella's dandelion picture and to speak to that we are there are some of us here to maintain the natural world in the face of this mechanical consciousness. Um, and I have to figure like, not that I want any sort of blockchain ledger, but like in the larger system of encoding and reporting what, how this story played out that we did the thing that we were supposed to do. And so that's, that's anyway, that's how I, I, I've been living the last year and a half, I guess. And do you, do you see any, I mean, do you see like that control, you know, definitely happening in the digital twin and, you know, control of, you know, where everybody is, or do you see, you know, possibility that, you know, we can educate enough people about the other side and, you know, form an alternative to that? It's like it. So, um, I, like I said, I live in the space of possibility. I would say if you went around to most people and said, hey, you know that goofy thing, Second Life or like SimCity? Like, can you imagine like your grandchildren living just mostly like that? Like 99% of the people of the world would be like, like mostly like that? And they would be like, no, no, because that's actually pretty cheesy and corny. Like, you know, I, I think if most people understood what was at stake, and understood that the the metaverse as they're building is a military space, um, and that 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 there's only a, an illusion of autonomy there, that it wouldn't happen, and that um, there's a lot of moving parts. I mean, they have to build it, <laughs> they have to make the people build it, you know. And I I think that's sort of one of my focuses around um, what they're doing in Africa and India with Cardano and UNICEF to get. Um, particularly like the ultimate coup is to get black and brown women to code the metaverse into reality. I think that that's like the ultimate like sort of co-optation and inversion there. Um, but that's assuming they're able to actually get all of this, all of these things in place and working in a coordinated fashion. And so, you know, I keep taking hope that like Philadelphia is such a half-assed city, like half the time, like all these big plans, like never actually happen. Right. Um, does that mean that we shouldn't take them seriously and refuse them? Like, no, but I do not think it's a foregone conclusion. And I, I don't feel that it's particularly helpful to live in that space because then what, right? Like, I, I don't think, I mean, if what you wanna do is to walk away from where you are because where you are is not the place you wanna be and build something else in the time you have, for sure. Like, if you wanna do that thing, like I, and that brings you satisfaction to your life and that keeps you connected to humanity and nature and relationships. Do that thing, but don't do it because you're running away from the other thing. Because I think in the nature of the running away is where 
that feeds into advantages their side. You know what I mean? And I think there's a differentiation between making a, a choice to leave because you want to build something and and leaving because you just have fear. Yeah, I was going to say rather than just running away in, in fear, because I think if we just focus on what is constantly the worst case scenario, we're not, you know, creating and enjoying our life, you know, the way we, we want it to be. And is there anything like that, that you do, um, like in terms of, I don't want to say like prepper or against the system, but, you know, I think everybody these days has some kind of like a smartphone or but then I, you know, I hear some people have these other things called freedom phones where they don't track you, or are they, um, you know, and some people prep for this or that, or you know, is there any kind of like a balance that you find, um, you know, still being in in society, but like doing anything, you know, just to be uh, smart to just, you know, plan plan ahead the best you can. Well, um, like. I mean, it's hard to imagine what that is in Philadelphia, because honestly, if everything really goes wrong, like I'm in an urban area and like, even if you had lots of stuff, like your ability to maintain control over all the stuff you have, like seems questionable. So, um, but again, I love my city. I love my husband. I, you know, I'm not willing to walk away at this point. Um, I, for me, like my balance and some of this is like, you know, I, I've learned from people is like, what is your lineage? What is your ancestral trauma? Like, what are the, what are the gifts? What are the things you have to work through? And, you know, I, my, my family history is probably as dysfunctional as anybody else's. But, like, on the gift side, like, both my grandmother and my great aunt, they were quilters. And so they, they would have these quilting bees and these quilting projects. And so I, I was doing it more before all of this happened. But um, I make quilts and, uh, but I make them for people. Like, I mean, I made a lot of quilts for like my own immediate family and household, but now I, I don't, I have enough quilts. Um, and so I, I like the universe tells me who, where I should send. And, and for me, like making a quilt is like putting an embodiment, like a manifestation of intention into that because I actually make it for somebody like not, I just make a quilt and then I give it to somebody, but I actually make it with an intention for somebody. And I've been doing that for like, you know, a number of years, whether that's a baby quilt, I made a quilt for like, you know, a wonderful activist who is a plowshare nun, um, who, you know, in, in Philadelphia, like different things. And you, you make them and you put that intention on them. So I just, you know, in, in all of the tumult of this past summer and, and, um, you know, recent happenings, like I've actually been, making a quilt um for a friend that i just finished yesterday actually and it's on my telegram chat um but it's it's quite so then it's like you've made you've made like a being i don't know this person said maybe a power object right <laughs> and and then you put it out into the into space and, and and activate it with other people and so that's probably of all of the things like that you might consider preppery um is probably my quilting projects um but for me it's a meditation and um I think it's sort of a metaphor for my praxis in how I sort the information of the world um, too, because it is like quilting, right? It is about like taking these small independent pieces and, and comparing colors against one another and tones and light and dark and making patterns that then, then have a larger meaning when it's all complete. Um, so yeah, that's how I've been occupying my time. Very cool. Very inspiring. Like that. Maybe I can just um, fit in one last question. Um, 
had it earlier talking about like the spiritual aspects and you said that you know there are other beings besides spiritual beings and you know is are there you know spe specific um like do you like ways that you connect or like receive messages or send messages or connect to the other kind of spiritual beings who are on you know for lack of a better term like you know on our <laughs> side <laughs> you know i I don't have a specific practice. I just, I kind of like, try, I, and sometimes I get sucked into the digital space, which doesn't feel good. Like I'm there too much. And clearly, um, you know, I think one of the, my takeaways from the, these things that unfolded is like your, the vulnerability of your digital self and the ability of people who know how to use um, these digital spaces as weapons that they they essentially can conjure reality, right? Like I, I sort of would put myself out there and I'm like, well, I'm an open book and I don't feel like I stand by my my actions and, and I always say I don't have all the answers. Um, uh, so like what would, how could someone really hurt me? But what, what I'm realizing is, is that in these spaces, if you know how to use these tools, um, and you know how to use like win hearts and minds and use that leveraged sort of social credit system that you can actually make reality even out of something that is not a reality. So for me, the, the intention to go out into the real and engage in the real is really important. And, you know, I've been connecting to water, you know, there, like I said, there's this um, story that I want to write more about this Kelpius, Johannes Kelpius and the Wissican and these, these monks. And even at the 4th of July, like I went, like there's a Wissican Creek that runs through this, this Creek area. And, even early on in all the pandemic and, and knowing about all the people around the world and making these connections, um, thinking about being connected through the water systems, right? That, that, that in our beingness, no matter like most people where they are in the world are near some body of water and that, that like in that energetic space, we're all connected in those water flows. And so for me, that's kind of where I look for it, I guess, is in the real world, in, in, even just backyard nature systems and um, and yeah, so I don't I don't have like a particular specific practice. There are a lot of people who are much better at this than I am. I just sort of wander around and bump into things, and then I sort of say, okay, thank you. <laughs> you <know? laughs> You're keeping an eye out for me, right? You're keeping an eye out for me, and um, you know, and I will say, even in navigating the hard things, that people have been um, very responsive. Um, and caring on the, in the converse, because sometimes when you go through hard times, then there are people who will say, you know, you may not realize this, but there are a lot of us who actually care, care about your path. And we've been sending like healing intentions or, you know, energy, good energies your way to protect you in this time, which is, it gives them an opportunity of saying that, which is also very comforting because you, you never know how far your reach is in any of this stuff. Um, but yeah, I just, I, I guess I'm trusting the natural world and I'm, I'm trying to not get so caught up into the digital world and the information, the encoded digital information that I lose track of the encoded natural information. Thank you, Allison. That's uh, great speaking with you and I'll pass it back to Grace. Well, hello there. So um, you can hear me well. Thank you so much, everyone. And Allison, um, Yes, a million thanks again, and we will connect. And uh, you want to tell people where they can get in touch with you about your Telegram, your website, and other things that you're about to do? 
Yeah, sure. Um, so uh, right now I'm, I'm, I, I do have a, so I have a YouTube channel, which is under my name, Allison McDowell. Um, and on there, there's a link to my Telegram chat um, if people want to join in. And um, I also, I'm on Twitter for now, which is my tagline is at Philly, P-H-I-L-L-Y 852. Um, and I'm, you know, I, I post there pretty regularly. And then I have a blog. So wrenching the gears, I haven't been so active about posting to my blog, but I'm hoping actually in the coming months to uh, work with my friend Jason to create a platform that's a little more collaborative, because I think what we most need right now is more of horizontal movements of empowerment um, and spaces where people who might uh, lean into some of the, the the framing that we're offering a space for them to share um their toolkit, their box, their toolbox. Um, I'm kind of imagining almost like a winter of storytelling. So like how to tell stories to help us find our way through this into other spaces. And, you know, I know in, in indigenous cultures, a lot like winter is sort of that time to, to be together and, and do those storytelling opportunities. So hopefully we'll get that off. I don't have a, a URL for that yet, but um, yeah, stay posted. Thanks a lot. And to all of you viewers, um, so this is, you're watching this on uh, the YouTube and the Facebook, but we will upload it in different platforms. Um, for me, it's in the Quantum Nurse Bitchute and the Rumble and all others. And I'm sure uh, Allison will put it up somewhere also. So we just kind of just share the wealth so that it could exponentially grow and have a massive reach, okay? Great. Thank you for the invitation. That was great talking with you all. Thank you all. Thanks, Allison. <laughs>